Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. This week, I think we have a guest that you guys are going to find really fascinating. His name is Dimnor Hernan, and he comes from Nokia Bell Labs as the head of experiments in art and technology. If you don't know Nokia Bell Labs, they're super historic in the uh, engineering world, technical world. They invented the transistor there. It goes all the way back to Alexander Graham Bell. They're just absolute juggernauts in the technology world. And so it's really interesting to find that within this lab, uh, there's actually a really strong history of uh, collaboration with artists and creativity and Dimno is at the head of that right now. So please stay tuned. I think you're going to enjoy this episode and welcome Dimno Harden. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. Today we have a super interesting guest. Donald, is, is that, I'm, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Donald Hernan, is that right? Close? <laughs> close, close. I'll give you a B plus. Uh, it's actually Duno. Dimno, okay. Duno, yeah. Phonetically impossible Irish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, the Gaelic stuff kind of throws me off, man. I apologize. I actually Googled <laughs> how to pronounce and then spelled your name out, and I got as close as I could, but. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, so, yeah, so Dimno is from. Uh, Bell Labs. And for those listeners who don't know, I mean, Bell Labs is sort of legendary in the engineering world, birth of the transistor. They've been around forever. Um, but within Bell Labs, um, you're responsible for a program called the Exper- Experiments in Art and Technology, where artists are coming together with engineers to um, basically play on ideas and, and uh, see what comes out of those relationships. And it what struck me whenever I first found out about this is that it sounds like a very modern idea, but um, as we did a little bit of research, it turns out that the EAT, the Experiments in Art and Technology, is actually a fairly old idea. Can you give me a little of the background? Yeah, sure. So it actually, Experiments in Arts and Technology officially started sometime in the late 60s, but in fact, Bell Labs' interactions with the artistic and creative community goes back even farther than that. So I'll I'll maybe go back early into the history and very quickly go through it so you can understand and build up to where EAT came from in the 60s, 70s, 80s and where we are today. So clearly as the early 30s, we had our first collaborations with artists. And would you believe the first stereo transmission of sound was delivered by from Bell Labs Research with the famous conductor at the time, Leopold Stokowski. Um, So that was one of the kind of very first engagements with the artistic community. And again, showing the world um, in a much more compelling way rather than the way we kind of deliver our research and our technology normally. Working with the artistic community was always appreciated in Bell Labs as pushing the boundaries of what we could do. So you roll on another couple of decades, there was lots of things in between. But in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of pioneering work in Bell Labs around the first computer music with Max Matthews, the first computer animation and computer graphics with Ken C. Knowlton. Um, and then there are a number of artists came in at the time, both on the computer music, computer graphics, and on generally in sound and sound composition. 
uh, where there was this unbelievable history of artistic collaborations and quite extensive artists in residency uh, collaborations that took place in Bellabs at that time. In fact, Lillian Schwartz, who's a very famous uh, person in the area of computer graphics, she spent 30 years as an artist in residence with Bell Labs, would you believe? And then, so that took place in the 50s and 60s and lots of artistic collaborations and also lots of our researchers at the time were actually creative technologists. They were very artistic in their own right, which was also very interesting. And then in 1966, there was this seminal bringing together of Bell Labs engineers and some of the top artists from the New York area. And that came about as the nine evenings of theatre and engineering in the armory in New York. And that's where a number of Bell Labs engineers, mainly led by Billy Kluver and uh, Fred Walhauer, they uh, collaborated with Rauschenberg, Cage, Whitman, and a number of other luminaries in their fields at that time. And they brought together these nine evenings of performance. And that was received so well, even though at the time it was very ahead of its time and very avant-garde, it was received so well that that caused this bringing together of a new movement, which was called EAT, Experiments in Arts and Technology, which was this global matchmaking between engineers and artists at that time to try and fuse those two disciplines in a new way. And that's something that really hadn't happened much before then and certainly had not happened at that scale. And that's actually the history of a lot of the interactions we have um, with Bell Labs, our researchers, our scientists, our engineers, with the artistic community. It goes back quite some time and there's a really deep, very strong uh, legacy there. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, it seems to be obviously the reason that we talk about art and technology on this podcast is that um, there seems to be a lot of consistent overlap. And so you're an interesting story just yourself. You have you came from a musical family. Um, you were an aeronautical engineer through school. And if I understand correctly, you even got your Ph.D. in that field. So how did you kind of find your way from, you know, a super rigorous uh, technical background with a little bit of creative influence to the role that you're in now? Uh, that, that's a funny question. I get asked that a lot and um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I have a good answer, but let me let me try and give you what comes to mind. Sure. So I think that when I've thought about this, I used to get asked that question a lot and I kind of just my answer was, well, just because I kind of did a few things and I'm an artifact of my upbringing and here I am. And I was really disappointed with that answer. It wasn't really strong enough. And then I started thinking back a little bit, regressing into my memory banks. And then I remembered when I joined Bell Labs um, early in my career, I really just naturally had a different way of talking about my research, a different way of showing my research. I put a lot of effort in when I became a manager back in, in the early days in my career. I put a lot of investment into how you design your technology, how it is aesthetically pleasing, how it is experienced by the user. And that really was quite different to a lot of the my colleagues at the time and a lot of the research community doing more fundamental academic research. And that used to be my answer for a while on how I got to where I am, that I naturally had this aesthetic kind of um way of showing the work and a kind of compelling narrative around it as well that was not your normal research mode of communication. But then I kind of thought about that and I was given that as an answer for a while and someone said, well, that's a great answer, but why did you take that way at that stage in your career? And I was like, well, damn it, now I have to go and figure out and regress <laughs> back to my childhood to figure what was going on with me that I happened to have that approach. And I think if I was to trace it back, I grew up in a really small village in the west coast of Ireland, maximum 200 people. Hmm. And um, funny aside, 
uh, fact about it was we had five bars, five pubs, as we called them, in the village. So <laughs> 200 people and five pubs was a staggering <laughs> ratio of alcohol to people. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but what I realized was when I thought back when I was growing up, you know, everyone was like me. We all looked the same. We all thought the same. We were all, all pretty much were the same. But when I saw people that were different to me, I was fascinated by that. And I really wanted to understand the differences and not just superficially, not just skin color or tone of voice or accent. I mean, I wanted to understand all of the differences, including why, what motivated people? Why did they think that way? Why did they act that way? And I used to notice a big difference with um, a lot of the folks where I grew up. Um, they kind of saw a difference as a bad thing or a negative where I, I was really intrigued by it. And I think if I was to go back to the genesis of you know, why I am where I am. It's because I was always driven by understanding those differences, trying to get as much out of those differences, as much understanding as possible. And that combined with the fact that I did come from a musical family, I think I was exposed to a lot more difference than others, maybe. Um, and then on top of that, for whatever reason, I just had this natural inkling towards the aesthetic or the well-designed and, and so on. So I, I think it's a bit of a fudgy answer. I'm not entirely sure. But it's some combination of all those things and maybe a bit of luck as well. I I have to say my favorite part of that answer is that, you know, there's not a whole lot of people who um, are forced to be introspective about their childhood because they get asked so frequently in interviews how they got to where they are. So yeah. I, I guess you're in the unique inter <laughs> the unique situation where your popularity has led to some psychoanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> it's only taken three trips to my therapist to get over some of my memory regression <laughs> issues so <laughs> right 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 uh well then you have you have something in common with with plenty of artists then but uh so yeah. <laughs> so i'm curious one of the things that you had mentioned to me in a in a previous call too was that um part of your role at bell labs and kind of part of what got to you where you are is um that you were pretty good at culture change within Bell Labs. Um, could could you tell me a little bit more about that and how that wrapped into sort of that uh, aesthetic thinking and um, sort of design thinking philosophy? Yeah, so one of the things I kind of experienced when I first joined Bell Labs out of my PhD, I was involved in teams and I was part of teams and I had you know management at the time and colleagues and. Um, I kind of got very confused and frustrated by the way people were talking about their research and sharing their research with non-researchers. And I found that quite amazing. Again, it was one of these probably I saw a difference and I saw something going on there that I wanted to get to the bottom of. And I realized very quickly that there was a mode of a scientist and an engineer being through their training that caused them to view the world in a very limited way and caused them to view the world in a way that they could only communicate in their terms. And they could never step back and say to themselves, do you know what, how could I communicate best to this product designer or this product engineer or this executive in the company to, to enable them to understand my work in the best, most compelling way? And I found that really extremely fascinating and at the same time kind of frustrating, to be honest with you, that I could not understand why everyone else could not see that there might be a better way. Now, I'm not saying I'm always right, but I think in the context, it kind of stood out to me as a prime example. So one of the earliest kind of when you talk about culture change, one of the earliest uh, things that I tried to drive change in was how we narrate our research, how we try and compel others to believe in our research, how we show our research in demonstration form, how others visually and 
in other forms experience our research. And that was one of the big ones that I, one of the big kind of change initiatives I led in Bell Labs very early on. I put a lot of investment into hiring designers, industrial designers. We built a prototype lab uh, in Bell Labs at the time when one didn't exist elsewhere. We used all of the biggest emerging um, kind of demonstration and prototype equipment like laser cutters and 3D printers. And I'm going back a little bit of time here, you know, this is probably maybe 10 years ago sure. before 3D printers became a big buzzy thing. So that was one of the first examples was um, just this very different way about talking about your research and showing your research. And in comparison, if I was to try and paint a comparison prior to this, research would be shown via a graph of performance on a slide deck that might have had an essay's worth of text on the graph <laughs> uh, right. and on the slide. And then there might have been you know, 50 different types of trend line or, or data plot on the particular graph. And it would be impossible for anyone except the subject matter expert to understand what that was about. And then in the conversations, the researchers and management at the time would discuss things with external people, non-academic researchers, and they would actually, and this is not an exaggeration, they would speak in equations. And I really found that just so fascinating. And again, it wasn't a matter of me just saying that people are wrong and we need to change it, but I had to fundamentally understand what was it in the mindset and the training of people like me, engineers and scientists that have PhDs and get really deep into their research and their technology. What was it about that and how could I understand that and then break that mold to drive a, a positive change and really to help everyone get the most impact out of the work they're doing? Because a big part of this is if you can't convey the power of your research, then your research doesn't have as much value as it would have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, with a technical training and when you're around super technical people, they communicate in terms of what they want you to know. They they communicate in terms of concrete facts. But um, but when artists communicate, they communicate and how they want you to feel. Right. And so yeah. um, that's and really, at the end of the day, that that's sort of the the underlying premise for something like marketing when it's done right, right? Is that there there's you can't be on one or the other side of that. You have to kind of find the the line to walk in the middle. And it sounds like you're one of the lucky few who who have sort of gained the vocabulary on both sides of that equation to to be able to navigate that well. I think I think that's a point well made that, you know, the the creative mindset will will help you feel. And I think just for whatever reason, naturally, I tended towards communicating in that way, even prior to working with the artistic community, back when I was a hardcore engineer and I didn't know what good design was or any of these things at all. But I think that was the idea. How do you how do you convey something to, in, to someone in a way that they would sit back and kind of think about the world, think about their place in the world, think about the place of this technology and how it intersects with that human need, and then have them realize that, oh, you're doing something different here that actually could have positive impact on yeah, that was something that really motivated me very early on in my career and drove quite a lot of my activities around other types of culture change initiative where you really try to get to the, to the heart of how people see the world, how they think about the world, how they communicate, and then try and figure some ways, some little tricks at times. It doesn't have to be super complicated, but applying some tricks to help people maybe break out of that mold and figure a better way of having maximum impact for, from what they do. Because that's actually, if I was to break it down, probably what I'm super passionate about is how do you maximize the ratio for everyone of energy in versus output out, you know, mm. uh, impact of their output. And that's something that I'm really fascinated by, whether it's for an organization or an individual or a team. How do you help people 
get to that minimum effort in to get maximum out. Well, it, I and mean, communicating it, the right way is just one aspect. Yeah, it sounds like being at the experiments in art and technology within Bell Labs is kind of a perfect nexus to uh, to experiment with that and kind of hone that. What is what are the sort of creative goals and and how you know so so you've just kind of explained how you look at that intersection of um, communication between art and technology, but how does EAT look at it? How do they sort of frame what their creative goals and technical goals are? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier I described the nine evenings that led to the experiments in arts and technology organization. And in modern times, we're naming the lab in Bell Labs that I lead after that because of the impact that that collision of the artistic and the technologist uh, brought about. Um, and at that time, you know, the engineers really came on board as an enabler. They enabled some of the creative ideas of the artist. And that's really what drove the collaboration. But in, in nowadays, that's very different. Often, most of the creatives we work with are technologically exceptionally savvy and gifted. So they can do a lot of that. And, um, you know, the proliferation of some of these technologies that can be used in very creative ways is out there as well. So in modern times, we have a different approach. It's not just about bringing together artists and engineers. It goes well beyond that. And a large part of what motivates us is that we want to create new modes of empathic communication. And the reason we want to do that is in Bell Labs, always throughout the history, we are there to solve the greatest human need challenges of our time and of the future. And one of them, in my view, is the barriers that exist between people. And I mean that in the broadest sense, whether it's cultural barriers, political barriers, religious barriers or racial barriers. Um, you know, I always question why do these barriers exist in the world today? It's very um, confusing to me in, in many ways, to be honest with you. And there's theories around evolution and so on that will explain it. But I think in large part, the reason these barriers exist is because really the modes in which we communicate through the spoken word and the written word are exceptionally limited in lots of ways. So they're very good for sharing knowledge, but it's a really bad approach for sharing higher order aspects like emotions, sentiment, cognition, these things that make us really human. Hmm. So I think our modes of communication today are exceptionally limited with, from that perspective. And I think that in, in a large part is, uh, explains why we have these barriers. So what we're really trying to do in the modern day EAT program the, the purpose behind everything we do, every artist we work with, every project we start, every technology we invent or every technology that we try and break to do a different thing is all about how can we create these empathic modes of communication to break down these barriers. Um, and that's really the, the modus operandi of the lab in modern times. Hmm. So just in, in the research and in, in talking to you in a previous phone call, uh, one of the most intriguing projects to me was something called The Sleeve. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the sleeve? Yeah, the sleeve. So, you know, we, we're always questioning the present and the future in, in the labs, and we're very privileged to be paid uh, a salary to do that. And uh, one of the things we're questioning quite a lot recently for some time has been our current modes of communication, but also the types of technology that we communicate over. And, uh, of course, one of them has to spring to mind is the the smartphone. So you have to consider the smartphone in its current design and what kind of value that brings to the world and where what might be the device of the future for our communication. Um, and if you think about the smartphone, if you just think about it from a couple of application perspectives, if you think about uh, the future where humans will have to communicate through augmented reality, AR and VR, virtual reality, 
in, in the case of VR, you will have to wear a clunky headset around your eyes all the time. And, you know, you could argue that that certainly is not the future. Right. Now, let's go to AR, augmented reality. So now you can say, well, you either have glasses, which have their own problems, or maybe you experience the world through augmented reality by holding your phone up against the world. But now very quickly, if you start holding your phone up against the world, you realize very quickly that that cannot be the solution for the future, right? Right. Um, and there's a couple of other examples around how you sense your body from a physiological or, or health perspective where the phone or the wearables that we have today cannot be the, the right answer. So we're developing a new range of wearable technology um, that we think of as the disaggregation of the smartphone, where you can pull out some of the key functionality and place it appropriately around different parts of your body such that you can optimally measure, sense, your your physiological state, your emotional state, and also that you can control the world around you. So instead of needing to control the world via thumb swipes on your phone or pressing buttons on another type of interface, w wouldn't it be nice to very naturally be able to interface with the world and control all of the world around you through natural gestures, which we've evolved to to have? So that's just an example of one of the new types of device that we're developing, which we happen to call the the sleeve. You could consider it as a type of wearable, but on uh, steroids where you can communicate with anyone around you you can interact and control the world around you and you can do advanced types of um, biomedical and physiological sensing uh, through it as well and that's just one of the technologies we're developing in bell labs that happens to feed as one of the technology assets that we use in our artistic collaborations because we think very deeply about what choices we make in our technology technology design today what might be the tensions and issues that arise downstream of that and in particular, we find that working with the artistic community is very powerful because they have a very human-centric approach to their thinking and their uh, work, and they have a very philosophical approach, and they help us kind of get out of our engineer or scientist and myopic mindset around the technology itself, and they help us bring the human into it, not just the human today, but the human of the next 20 years. Yeah. Um, and so that's a great kind of, uh, we're very privileged to be able to access this emerging best in the world type technology that we can then give to the artistic collaborators we have and see how they can help us understand the best way to design it, think about it, and maybe even implement it to help humanity. Hey, everybody, I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second. First and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening. Uh, we really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously, you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first is leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. To give listeners a little bit of a clue to the sort of scale of technology we're talking about here at, at your particular lab is uh, from the research that I did, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, this thing has like uh, cameras that can look at you on a nano level and even read biomarkers so that it can understand um, 
what what you ate that day and how you're feeling and um like it has a pretty insane depth of like it's more than just understanding your gestures in air it's it's about understanding really what you're going through at that particular moment right exactly so we have we have a range of different technology that we are putting in some of these devices and one of the ones i think you're referring to is a particular optical technique that can see within the skin without ever having to penetrate the skin yeah and it also has the ability to pick up on chemical specificity again just optic so yeah we're really excited about some of that technology that completely non-invasively now you can get a wealth of information very accurate information about your body yeah and then how you fuse some of those different types of advancing together can give you a more true representation of your whole self and then when you start adding in not just the biometrics but then you start adding in some of the emotional detection you're really much closer to a more complete view of who we are as people and how we can represent ourselves and maybe even transfer a sense of state from one person to another uh, towards these building these modes of empathic communication. Yeah. And I think so. I mean, talking about the sleeve definitely gives a scope of the technical stuff that you guys are doing, but also um, another project that kind of struck me that sort of illustrates more the creative end of what 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 artists might be able to do with that type of information um, is the the cherry blossom tree. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so one of our artists, Lisa Park, who was an artist in residence with us uh, for a year from May of uh, last year to May of this year, um, she's really interested and has done a lot of work in the call making visible the invisible signals between people. Hmm. So she will kind of sensorize and measure people. She will put them in different social circumstances and then she will measure the interaction between them and then she will either visualize that externally or sonify it um, so that the audience or people around them can, can get a sense of what their interactions are that would otherwise be invisible. And with Lisa, we worked on a project which was all around the concept and the importance of a touch in human communication, human interaction, and just being human. And um, so from that point of view, in this particular project, it was called Blooming. The concept was it was a cherry blossom that when you entered this space, it was in its non-blooming state. So the leaves were not on the trees. It was a very barren, bare tree with, with branches. And when you entered the space and it needed more than one person, when the people physically made contact through a range of different sensing technology, both visual and otherwise, um, and based on measuring their heart rate, the cherry blossom physically blossomed in front of them as a full-size holographic projection. Hmm. And we had this as an output of a year-long residency where we explored the importance of touch the role it needs to play in in in-person human connectivity, but also in human connectivity using technology. And what we were really very pleased with was the response of the participants. Many people broke down crying because of, I think, how it reconnected them as a family, reconnected them as couples, and it kind of reminded them of the importance of proximity in human relationships and the importance of, of physical touch. I mean, it's something that's from an evolutionary point of view, exceptionally important to the human condition. And it's something I think largely we've kind of forgotten about. And I think forgetting about things like that are going to cause us downstream tensions. And we are thinking about how we can develop that kind of mode of interaction into our emerging technology so that we can build these better connections between people. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> I think it might be safe to say that that we're already suffering some of those downstream issues, right? I mean, one of the things that you talk about in some of your talks is 
the epidemic of digital loneliness. Um, so it seems like really, I mean, even though the technologies you guys are working on might be kind of futuristic, it seems like the need for it is now. Uh, yeah, I think I, I agree completely. I think we've, you know, in some aspects, we've kind of we've lost a lot of ground. And that concept of digital loneliness fascinates me. If you think about this throughout the history of humanity, we've never been so connected through technology, but we've never been so disconnected from a human perspective. And um, a lot of these tensions are arising, especially digital loneliness. I find fascinating that someone can have 5000 friends on Facebook and yet they are depressed and they're lonely and they don't feel that they know where their place is in the world. So I think this is a lesson to be learned for technology companies that you need to really consider these downstream effects and you need to be able to think about them up front and design them out up front. And that's something that I'm most proud of in our work is that we're doing that with our artistic collaborators. So I'm curious, the picture that you're painting with the work at EAT is a very technophilic sort of picture, but there are those who are sort of on the other side of the aisle who are in some cases legitimately fairly concerned about what the future of technology is, both you know privacy concerns, looking at um, automation and sort of future of work and uh, you know what the potential for the impending robot revolution and all that kind of stuff is if you want to slippery slope it. Um, where do you feel like your role is not you personally, but at EAT, um, what do you feel like your position is in these debates about where the future of technology is going and how it can affect quality of life? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's a number of angles to look at this. I think one is that technology has, for the most part, for the vast majority, proven to be a substantial enabler of human improvement throughout all of history. Now, of course, there are times and periods and the use of technology that has been just horrible and has been devastating. But for the most part, it really has enabled us to uh, reach closer to our full potential, I would say. So I tend to take an optimistic view on technology always. Um, now, you have to think about things like privacy concern, security concern, reliability, hacking, all these kind of aspects. And I just, again, see that as being always the case. Any new technology that we've had, there's always been some of these potential downsides to it. And I don't really see any of these modern automation, AI, machine learning type technologies being any different. And what I really get worked up about is, I think there's a very negative discourse in the popular media that's driving a lot of fear amongst people. And that's probably what gets me most worked up about. I think it's fine having a level of concern and it's fine debating these things and trying to understand what could be the potential downsides. But the level of kind of hype and negative discourse is just off the charts. And I meet people that are not in I meet people that are in technology, in fact, never mind people that are not in technology, <laughs> that are actually genuinely scared about all of this. And um, so I think there's a lot to be said for taking a step back and actually maybe trying to think about this in, in a deeper way, more uh, logical ways, we'll say a more scientific way, for lack of a better word. And when I try to step back and think about this and try and explain my thoughts on it, I can't help but think we really have this tendency to anthropomorphize everything we do, right, as humans. And we've managed to anthropomorphize AI as an example. And we've managed to do the same for automation. And the big argument that always happens with AI is an example, one of the buzziest of buzzy technologies at the moment, is that everyone says, you know, the AI will reach this point, the singularity, it'll become more intelligent than humans. 
and then it will squash us like we're invaluable bugs or something like this is the thing that I keep <laughs> on hearing everywhere I go. Right. And um, I just find that so crazy because if you think about this, if this intelligence comes into existence and it could be basically practically overnight, for lack of a better expression. Sure. It'll come into this super state of intelligence and it will not have any of the baggage that we have from a human point of view. Um, so why do we think that if it doesn't have our human baggage, because now I'm not talking about this thing being trained based on human traits. I'm talking about this thing entering its own point of hyperintelligence, right, which is a different thing. It won't have our human baggage. Why would it look at us, at us as bugs and want to stomp us out? That's a very human thing to do to some extent. I think there's other possibilities. I think it might decide to not pr proliferate. I don't see why a super entity would want to make trillions of itself. I mean, I just don't get the, the logic in that. But then again, I'm not a super intelligent entity, so I can't really speak to it with authority. <laughs> right. But I also think about the fact that maybe this super intelligence might look upon us and say that it wants to help us reach our full potential. Or maybe it'll float off to the universe and try and find its own place in the world and not really worry about us too much. So I think there's so many other potentials for the technology rather than this doomsday scenario that everyone's painting. And I really don't like this fear-mongering that is occurring. And I think that people should take a different perspective on it. And in a lot of the work we do in the EAT lab with our artistic collaborations is to show people the potential creative ability of some of these tools and that's all they are they're currently just tools another type of tool and we try and show that in really compelling interesting ways to get people thinking about this differently and not to believe all the hype that's going on in the popular media yeah yeah i think it's um it's such an interesting discourse and i think there's such a large information gap too between what people hear about in the news and by the way quick aside a shocker that the modern media would be sensationalizing anything right but uh yeah sure i know <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i mean there seems to be a pretty big gap between um what people understand about automating automation artificial intelligence and and what the reality of the technology is is it even is it even a technology that you guys are um playing with much uh, i know um there's one artist that you worked with who um, was doing sort of collaborations with an AI arm. Is that correct? Yeah, we well, we have quite a lot. So we have a lot in our in our core research, uh, aside from the EAT lab. I mean, we have our different research disciplines. Sure. So we have a lot of activity uh, using information theoretic principles like mathematics to build better types of search engine or similarity engine. And we would usually refer to them more in the terms of augmented intelligence than artificial intelligence. Hmm. Of course, Bell Labs has a strong history. I think convolutional neural nets were, were designed and invented first in Bell Labs by Jan LeCun back in the 80s. Hmm. So we, yeah, we have quite a lot of research activity in that space. We do a lot of work there. And we also feed some of that research into our EAT lab, how we give that technology to the artists and seeing how they can um, you know, use it in a different way. So the, one of the projects you mentioned, I mean, one of the projects I'm very excited about at the moment, we just started kind of sharing this publicly, it's with, uh, well, he's a polymath creative. He does all sorts of things, but he's best known for being a beatboxer. His name is Reaps One. Hmm. And with him, we trained, a using machine learning algorithms, a digital twin of himself to beatbox. So it's quite fascinating. You watch this process where he's training and feeding input into the machine learning. The machine learning is basically growing from embryotic state to something that starts kind of sounding like a person to something that is making its own sounds and beats. 
and you follow this progress and and you realize now that this machine, this intelligence machine of some form is starting to create its own sounds and its own patterns. And in the process of him training this algorithm, the algorithm has ended up training him and teaching him new techniques. And this guy is like the most extreme version of what anyone in the world can do with their voice. And yet he's learned something new from the technology. And we find that really interesting as an example to people about the creative potential of these kinds of tools, that someone who is at the most extreme, the best in the world and has in the most extreme way expounded the bounds of his voice can then be taught something by a machine which he happened to train in the first place. So that's just one of uh, one of the artistic collaborations that we have in this space. The other one that I really like uh, telling people is that another artist called Jeff Thompson, who's based here in New Jersey, he's really interested in the relationship we have with technology. And he thinks about this a lot. And he kind of put it to me, he was saying, did you ever think about the fact that you are more intimate and you spend more time with your smartphone than you do with anyone else in your entire existence. Hmm. And he thinks about this kind of thing a lot. And, and when he put it to me, I was like, you know, when you put it that way, it's actually kind of disturbing. I mean, I'm more intimate and spend more time with my smartphone than I do with my wife. Yeah. So um, that's just bizarre. And my family, if you think about it. So what he does, he developed this um, artistic piece, which was a robotic arm that had a soft kind of sponge-like end to it. And what he ended up doing was he, using machine learning algorithms, he measured his how he interacted with his phone, how he touched the touch screen. And he used machine learning algorithms then to learn that. And then he, fe he fed those algorithms to the robotic arm. And then what you do is a, any person comes in, puts their hands directly under the robotic arm, and this robotic arm strokes them like he strokes his phone, <laughs> which he trained using the machine learning algorithms. And the idea here is to get people thinking about one, how we're more intimate with our technology than anything or anyone else. And also to start thinking about physically how we're interacting with it and what that might feel like if the machine had agency or if the machine had intelligence and things like that. So I found that project really eye-opening for me personally, as well as people that experience just to, and that's the great thing about the artistic mind, the creative mind, uh, compared to a technologist uh, in particular, they really have an ability to make you think deeply about your place in the universe. Um, and that I think is one of the most powerful things and uh, what they bring to us when we start thinking about research, technology, and product development. Man, that's such an interesting turn on the AI conversation that uh, this is the first time that I've considered that sort of the, you know, everybody thinks about what happens when they get smarter than you or um, take your jobs away. But the thought that we could actually be depending on technology for um, uh, is almost an emotional surrogate. And, you know, that what could AI do to to blow that out of the water in either a positive or a negative direction. That's a pretty fascinating concept. So, so, so the artist has done his job from afar, just b using you by proxy. That's a very interesting concept. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I have to say, I find it fascinating. I, I've learned so much um, collaborating with the artistic community. And, you know, you talked about, you know, the intelligence and machines and in particular, I think it's, this is really important. If you think about elder care, and if you think about, you know, elderly people that are at home alone, they're they're lonely, maybe suffering from forms of depression, does that loneliness. And you think about inserting in some kind of a technological asset to help them. If that technological asset, if that robot or that toy dog or that whatever, if that can't convey emotion and understand emotion, then it's not really going to uh, do its job properly. And I think a lot of this technology has 
extremely positive implications for how it can help humanity. And one way would be certainly um, when you think about elder care as an example. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, uh, this has been a super interesting interview. Um, how how can artists get involved with EAT? So we, we have a, a web page, um, which you can find if you look up Bell Labs Experiments in Arts and Technology, just a simple Google search, you'll find it. We've quite a lot of information on that web page about our program, the different types of artistic collaborations, and they can make contact with me via that web page as well. And that's probably the best way to get a sense of our research. Um, consider if through the discussion on this podcast and what you see online, if you think your work has a deep resonance with us. Um, and then make contact and have a conversation and just see where it can go from there. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Domino. This has been such such an interesting conversation. I would really urge um, our listeners to stay tuned with EAT. You guys are doing some very fascinating stuff. Uh, and and really, it it's refreshing to talk to you to know that there's real sort of vision and altruism and curiosity and technical and creative merit behind everything that, that you guys are doing there. So this has been a pleasure to talk to you. But before I let you go, uh, we like to do at the end of each episode, a little rapid fire question to decompress a little bit, get to know you a little bit. Uh, is that all right? You have uh, another couple minutes for that? Well, yeah, I do. But I'm confused. Rapid fire and decompression in the one sentence. That's an interesting <laughs> uh, combination. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, well, decompression from the heaviness of the, none of these questions yeah. will be about the impending singularity. So, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So yeah. the idea is just to to fire off whatever first comes to your head, and we'll see where it goes. Um, so, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, you come from a family of of musicians in Ireland. What is the best Irish musician that our listeners may or may not have ever heard of before? Okay. So, well, my absolute favorite and someone that I and I don't idolize many people, but I completely idolize this person is actually an American woman based in Chicago okay. called Liz Carl. And she is just a genius and she plays the fiddle okay. uh, in Irish traditional uh, form. And she's absolutely spectacular. So have a listen to her. I hope that she will uh, blow your mind with her skill and her musicality. Very nice. Liz Carl. Never heard of her. So I will definitely look her up. I'm a big music file. So, uh, so, and then following up, you, you have the background in aero engineering. What plane got you into it? Is there like one plane that you're absolutely in love with? Yeah, I'll answer that question in two ways. So the thing that first got me into it was I used to stand out my back garden in the west uh, coast of Ireland in the countryside. Mm. And it was directly below the flight path of all the flights going from Dublin to the US. <laughs> and I used to see these things about 40,000 foot up in the sky. I'd see the contrails you know flying out the back and i just got fascinated with how the hell is that possible <laughs> um and i used to be super interested in aerospace and astronautics and things like that before and so i just became kind of obsessed with not to fly them i'm not interested in flying we wanted to understand how to design them to fly and that was the first kind of thing and i couldn't tell you what that particular plane was it was a little bit too far away for me to uh, identify it. But the next plane that really kind of inspired me was what's called the Blackbird, the SR-71, sure, which was this stealth plane that used to fly at about 100,000 foot back in the 70s, you know, probably can do about a Mach 3 or 3.5 or something like that. I'm probably off in my numbers, but it was this crazy piece of engineering, again, way back when, before we had these computers that we have today. Like, I mean, 
The guys that designed that designed that with computational power. That's a fraction of the computational power that I have in the key fob of my car. <laughs> never mind my smartphone, right? So, right. you know, this was this was another time, and that blew my mind, and that really got me kind of into it and the potential for engineering to do just cool things. There's a, there's a funny anecdote that I'm sure you can Google. Um, that someone's first person account, it was a little Cessna pilot and they're flying around and they do a, a check-in with the tower and the tower gives them their land speed and they're doing whatever, a couple hundred knots or whatever. And uh, there's a fighter jet pilot who's in the area running some some uh, routine just uh, training missions. And just to be a, you know, kind of a jerk, he also checks in with the radio tower and, uh, you know, they get his his airspeed and, you know, he's he's cruising along pretty good. And it just so happens that at that very moment, uh, there was a the the Blackbird just within radio range of the same tower <laughs> and not to be shown up. The third guy does the radio check in and the, the SR-71 is doing, you know, some unbelievable amount of speed sh- yeah. shaming the fighter <laughs> pilot. But that's awesome. I love yeah. that story. <laughs> Anyways, so so great great plane to pick there. I I love that plane as well. Uh, so a, a a question that we all struggle with from time to time: chocolate or vanilla? Uh, <laughs> vanilla chocolate, I think, is my answer. Oh yeah, the twist. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and last but certainly not <laughs> I, least, what is your greatest fear, irrational or not? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, I probably say my greatest fear is lying on my deathbed and contemplating my existence and realizing that I wasn't a nice person, that I didn't help others be the best they could be. That genuinely, I my kind of philosophy in life or my frame of thinking is always to project to my deathbed. And it's not in a depressing way, but just to think, you know, would I be proud of that? Would I be happy with that? Would other people think well of me? And I just find it a very good lens to think about my place in the universe. And that's my greatest fear. I really have to say it's probably my only fear, true fear, that I would just hate. I would be disgusted with myself if I was on in that place in my life and looked back and couldn't say that I tried to have a positive impact on the world, you know? Yeah. Well, if if everybody thought that way, we would probably have a little bit better uh, piece of green to to live on. But, you know, so, so it goes. That's awesome, man. So thanks so much, Domino. This was such an exciting interview. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to keep in touch and stay tuned to every cool thing that's happening at the EAT. Absolutely. And, and thank you for helping share the message and uh, keep up the good work. I think what you're doing is really important. Thanks so much, man. We'll talk to you soon. Talk soon. Bye. Cheers. Bye. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, listeners. I really hope you enjoyed the episode with Domino. What an interesting guy. What an interesting program at Bell Labs. It's so cool to see that Bell Labs, an absolute juggernaut and stalwart in the, in the technology world, is dedicating their impressive resources to keeping the collaboration between the art world and the technology world alive. So, so, so cool to have that conversation. Next week, if you tune in, we'll have Matt Drinkwater on the program, who's doing some very interesting things bridging uh, technology with the fashion world. So I'm not going to say a whole lot more. It's a really interesting concept working with some really cool CGI computer graphics and stuff like that. So I think you're going to enjoy that conversation as well. 
please, as always, if you enjoyed that episode that you just listened to, or if you enjoy what we're doing at State of the Art, please rate and review us. Um, the episodes, who we are, would be so helpful for us. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, it helps us grow and it helps other listeners just like you find us. So if you found us interesting, hopefully other people will too. Thank you so much. My name is Andrew Herman, and this has been State of the Art.